second. Let's pray together. Father, we gather today and we're thankful first and foremost for the gospel. And I pray that that is where we would focus this morning as we look at your word, that we would see Jesus for who he is and what he's accomplished on our behalf and for the glory of the Father and our salvation. Uh, Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the global church, Christians meeting all over the world today, worshiping you because of your son Jesus and people who have been reconciled to you because of the gospel. And I thank you for individual churches that are meeting uh, all over the place today, all over the world. And I thank you for our partnership in the gospel and how you make that possible. I thank you for friendships that are rooted in the gospel, that are not bound by geography or time, uh, but are rooted in eternity uh, based on your son Jesus and what he accomplished. So we want to focus on him today. We want him to receive the credit and the glory. We want to point people toward him. Father, if there's someone here today who has never understood the gospel and what Christ has accomplished, I pray that that would become clear to their hearts today, that you would open their hearts so that they can respond to faith in you and be redeemed, become one of your children, have their sins forgiven, and be reconciled to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me read to you the last sentence that's found uh, under the topic of scriptures in the Baptist faith and message. The last sentence of that part of the Baptist faith and message says this, All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Now, what this means is that all the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, points to or in some way teaches about Christ, that Jesus shows up everywhere uh, in the Bible, all over the Bible. The more you read the Bible, the more you're reminded of, of Christ. I was reminded of this a few months ago when we were in Jacksonville, Florida. Pam and I were at a pastor's conference, and the pastor was preaching through uh, the book of Job. And he was talking specifically about friendships in pastoral ministry and he was talking about job's friends and some issues he went through with his friends and he got to the end of the book of job and he got to chapter 42 and i began to read these verses we're going to read here in just a minute and i after we were done i told pam i said look at these scriptures more carefully and see see what's here there's the gospel in these verses it's something that I'd, i've read the book of job many times and yet i see clearly the gospel in these verses uh, in job so let's summarize real quickly the story of job many of you are familiar with uh, beginning in chapter 1 and going through chapter 2, we have the account of Job's testing. Uh, God looks at Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless, he's righteous, uh, the, the, he fears God. And Satan says, Of course he does. You've never let anything bad happen to him. Everything he does prospers. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of children. He's got a great family. Uh, everything he's ever done has prospered. Now you let me touch that. You let me take that. And he'll curse you to your face. And God said, Okay, fine. You can do anything you want, but you can't touch him. And so Job ends up losing his children, his wealth, uh, pretty much everything he owned. And yet he stays faithful to God and never curses God. So God looks at Satan again and says, in chapter 2, says, See, have you noticed my servant Job? Even though all of this has happened to him, he has stayed true uh, to me. And uh, Satan says, of course he's stayed true to you. Because what you've done is you've protected him. You haven't touched him. He's, He's still healthy, but you let me touch him. And he'll curse you to your face. And God said, okay, you can, you can do what you want to him, but you cannot kill him. And so Job becomes, becomes very ill. He's covered in boils all over his body. And his life has hit such rock bottom uh, that even his wife says, why don't you just curse God uh, and die? But Job never sins or curses God. The beginning in chapter 2 and running really all the way through the end of chapter 37, Job has friends that visit him. 
Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad come to counsel Job. But most of their counsel is telling Job, now you must have done something wrong here for this to be happening to you. You must have sinned in some kind of way, even though we're very clear looking at chapters 1 and 2, that hasn't happened. Uh, so they're constantly telling Job, you must have sinned, you must have done something wrong. Is there, you know, what, what have you done wrong? And Job said, I've done nothing wrong to, to deserve any of this. One friend does come, a man by the name of Elihu, and he gives Job some comfort, encourages Job to trust God. He's a little bit better than the friends that came at first. And then Job eventually himself goes through some times of uh, testing and questioning God uh, during uh, this time of, uh, of testing. And even he begins to question why... Why is this happening? I mean, he starts to question God a little bit. Okay, Lord, I don't think I've done anything wrong, so why is all this going, going bad in my life? Well, in chapters 38 through 41, God confronts Job's questions, but he doesn't confront them by answering them, but basically reminding Job of who he is, God, and who Job is. Let me just summarize those chapters for you. I'm the creator. You're the creation. Sit down and be quiet. You've got no right to question me. Where were you when the mountains were made, when the boundaries of the world were set up? Where were you when all this happened? You don't have any right to question anything I'm doing. So at the beginning of chapter 42, Job finally repents of his lack of faith and questioning God and says, you know, when God sits you down for a four-chapter come-to-Jesus meeting, you realize, okay, I'm sorry. And he sits down and said, I don't have any right to question you. And then we pick up in chapter 42, verses 7 through 10, where God deals with the friends who came to visit Job. So if you would, please stand as I read chapter 42, verses 7 through 10. It says that as it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I, might na- that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friend. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. You can be seated. So it was these verses that caught my attention in Florida. And I began to just see Christ so clearly uh, in these verses. Now, let me just lay a couple of foundations here. First of all, I believe the story of Job is true. All right. Uh, so this is not, I think, I don't believe this is a story that was just made up in the Bible to sort of picture the cross. I, I believe it does picture the cross, as we'll see in just a minute. But I believe it was a true story. I believe in Job, just like I believe in the Israelites going through the Red Sea. And that's a picture of the gospel and their deliverance from Egypt. Just like I believe when Hosea was asked uh, to marry a prostitute, to communicate the truth that God makes for himself a bride out of those of us who are all of humanity who is unfaithful. So I believe this is a true story, but one that we clearly see the gospel in. Then there are differences between Jesus and Job, and I understand that. Now, God himself said that Job was a righteous man, but we know that Job sinned. We know that he wasn't totally and completely righteous without sin as Christ was. But nevertheless, uh, as you look at this, you see some parallels here that I think are unmistakable. Uh, so looking at verse 42, verses 7 through 10, we see that God deals with Job's friends through Job. He offers forgiveness to Job's friends, but he does it through the book, through, I'm sorry, the person of Job. And we see in verse 7, the first truth that we have to recognize and come to grips with is humanity. 
Before you come to faith in Christ, you have to see this and you have to understand this. And that is God's wrath is on us. God's wrath is on us, but it's not on Jesus. Verse 7. It came about that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So in this verse, God gives a summary statement of Job and Job's friends. And he offers a comparison here. He tells Eliphaz that the wrath of God is on him and his friends. But not Job, because they spoke what that wasn't right about God, but Job never turned his back on God and always spoke truth about God. And here we have the distinction between all of humanity and one man, Jesus Christ. Here's what the Bible says about humanity and God's wrath. And I hear this a lot from people, that the Old Testament, I see a lot of God's wrath. I don't see much wrath of God in the New Testament. Well, I'm about to read plenty of scripture here to you in the New Testament. It talks about God's wrath. Not to mention, if you've missed God's wrath in the New Testament, you have completely overlooked the cross. Because that's what it was. That was God's wrath being poured out on Christ for our sin. I think about the cross and I think about the crucifixion and I think God was mad at somebody. And he was mad at me. And that's what you see uh, going on on the cross. In John 3.36 it says, He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So those who are not in Christ, those who have never put their faith in Christ, are under the wrath of God. And when they die, if they die having not put their faith in Christ, they don't fall into the arms of a loving God. They fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's the plight of humanity. Humanity is under God's wrath because of their sin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 1 verses 18. So the wrath of God is even being revealed in the world. Do you know what a lot of what you see in the world going on today is? A lot of what's even going on in our own nation, that we look at certain sins in our own nation and we say, because of these sins, God's going to perhaps pour his wrath out on our nation. You need to go back and read Romans 1 because you know what it says? That people were given over to immorality and unnatural relationships between men and between women. And that was actually God's wrath on them. What we're dealing with around the world may not, we may be beyond the, 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 uh, the truth of, of uh, if we don't change something, God's going to pour his wrath out on us. We, that may be going on right now. That's what Romans 1 teaches. Much of what we go on and see in the world may actually be God, in many ways, judging, judging the world and judging our nation for uh, having turned its back on the Creator and worshiping the creation. Romans 2.8, To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. That's what they wait for. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, We were by nature children of wrath, or by nature objects of God's wrath. In our unconverted, unredeemed state as human beings, we are repulsive to God. God doesn't look at humanity and think, that's a bunch of good-looking people down there. He's repulsed by us because of our sin, by our very nature, just in who, who we are, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 says, we're children of wrath. Colossians chapter 3, 6, where it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of of disobedience. So our disobedience and our sin, even our wrong thinking, when we think about Job's friends, so much of what the world uh, deals with today is wrong thinking about God. We have wrong ideas. That is why God's wrath is on uh, hanging over humanity. And the Bible says it's we've earned God's wrath. 
the wages of sin is death. You know what wages are? That's the rightful payment. You know, you work hard. You've earned wages. Your sin has earned for you God's wrath and death and judgment. That's that's your rightful payment for how you live and who who you are. And that's who we are. But Jesus is different. Just as Job was different, Jesus is different. God's attitude toward Jesus is positive. When Jesus was baptized in Mark chapter 1, God says to him, You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. He can't say that about anybody else of humanity. But in his son, Jesus, he can say, In you, I am well pleased. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus knew no sin. It was foreign to him. The idea of Jesus... Sinning, He understood what temptation was like, just as we do. But when it came to sin, that line that we crossed in the sinfulness, Jesus never crossed that line. He knew no sin. It wasn't a part of him. First Peter 2 says that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He never did anything wrong. He never said anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. And First John 3, 5 says that in him there is no sin. So this is where we first begin to see Jesus in these verses. And... And we begin to see the differences between us as human beings and Christ as the God-man is that we are Eliphaz and his friends. We have spoken untruth against God. We have sinned. God's wrath is kindled against us because of our sin. But Christ uh, is not displeasing to God. Christ is accepted by God. He's perfect. So in Job, we see, that Je- we see Jesus Christ who was righteous. And then verse 8 tells us why this is important. Because God grants us mercy... Through Christ. Verse 8, God said, Now therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So God offers Job's friends forgiveness, but specifically only through. Job, he tells him, take seven bulls, take seven rams, offer them as a burnt offering, bring them to Job so he can offer them as a burnt offering. Uh, Then Job will pray for you and I will accept Job. I will accept what Job has done. These people were unable to go directly to God. They had to go through Job. There had to be a mediator between them and between uh, God. And that person was Job. So in our sinfulness, we are unable to. To approach God directly for forgiveness. We can't. He's too holy and we're too sinful. We can't come to him. We're not going to be able to present any sacrifice. Any good work. No good have we done that we're going to be able to stand before God. And say I have anything worth in myself to offer you. To be accepted by you. If we do that all we're going to face is judgment. Because of the holiness of God and our sinfulness. There had to be a mediator. And Jesus Christ is that mediator. He's the one that advocates for us. He's the one that intercedes for us he's the go-between that's why he came to go between humanity and to go between god in isaiah 53 the prophecy of the coming messiah here's what verse 12 says yet he christ himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors he interceded for us he stood in the gap between us and god to bring us together and then the book of hebrews says in chapter 7 Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you. If you are a believer in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, Christ is alive today, having been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf. 
And then you don't get any clearer than 1 Timothy chapter 2 that simply says this, verse 5. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. That's it. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Now, when we were getting ready to drive here, I went on MapQuest. And I typed in my address and I typed in uh, the Norris's address where we're staying. And it gave me a recommended route. And then there was two or three other recommendations it gave me. And then you can go in and you could create your own route. I mean, if we wanted to, we could have shoot. We could have gone by the Grand Canyon and visited and gone down south and gone into Texas and come back. Around. I mean, we could take literally hundreds of different routes to get to our destination. That's what it does. MapQuest says we recommend this route. Here's another couple we recommend. But you could pretty much come up with your own route if you want to. Okay? Jesus is not MapQuest. He's not MapQuest where he says, here's a recommended route. I recommend you come through me. But there's a couple of other options out there that are just as good. And in fact, if you just want to make up your own route to get there, you can go ahead and do that. Just make it up and you can go any way you want. The Bible and the gospel are not MapQuest. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, one way, and that is it. He is the way, not a way. And there's a vast difference in how we look at Christ. First John chapter 2 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ bridges the gap between sinful humanity and between God by taking on himself in his flesh our sins when he was crucified. That if God, if Jesus had not been there and not coming, God comes directly to us. The only hope we have is judgment. We have no hope. That's the only thing we can expect is judgment. The only expectation is judgment. There, there's no other options. There, if, if we were going to be forgiven, there had to be someone to stand in there. So he's plainly stated, Jesus has done it all. He's our advocate, which is our defense attorney. Now, here's the interesting thing about him being our defense attorney. We think of a defense attorney as someone who says, well, I'm going to defend this person because they're innocent. Innocent. Satan is our accuser. He goes to God and says, these people are sinful and they deserve hell. Now, let me tell you something about Satan. He's a liar, but he's right there. That's, that's not an untruth. That's a truth. He goes to God and says, they're sinful. They deserve hell. And so Jesus is our advocate. He doesn't stand at the right hand of the Father and says, listen, you, you can leave them alone because they're innocent. No, we're guilty. He stands there and he's our advocate by saying the debt was paid. The penalty's already been paid. You don't have to penalize them. I took the penalty on myself. That's what he does as our advocate. Mercy is granted through a mediator between God and man, and that is Christ. We see this in Job as he's a mediator between his friends. But if you go all the way back, and I just saw this this morning. If you go all the way back to chapter 1. And go to verse 5, the fifth verse in the book. You know what you see Job doing on a regular basis? Offering sacrifices and praying for his children. He's Because he's thinking maybe they've sinned, maybe they've cursed God in their hearts, and I'm going to intercede on behalf of them. The whole idea of Job being an intercessor is at the beginning of the book of Job, and it's here at the end of the book of Job uh, as well. He intercedes on, on behalf of his friends just as Christ did for his friends. And John 15 says that greater love has no one than this than one lay his life down for his friends. Jesus is the way we are, we are brought and reconciled to, to God. He's the, he's the only way. There had to be someone to bridge that gap. And then in verse 9, we see that we're forgiven or we're accepted by God through our faith in Christ. 
Verse 9, here's was the response of the friends. It says, Eliphaz, and Timon, Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did just as the Lord told, told them, and the Lord accepted Job. So how did the friends respond to this? How did Job's friends respond when God says, here's the sacrifices you need to make, you need to go through Job? What do they do? They do it. They don't argue with God. They say, if that's the way we need to be forgiven, that's what we're going to do. And they do exactly what God asks of them. The gospel says that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done for us to be reconciled to God. We bring nothing, nothing to the table when it comes to God. And Christ has already done everything. In his death, he defeats sin by paying the sin penalty. In his resurrection, he defeats death. Everything that needed to be accomplished for eternal life, Christ accomplished in himself. And God says simply this, trust it. That's salvation. Believe it. Have faith in it. Just believe I've done everything that needs to be done. Put your faith in me. Then he turns you into a new creation. He makes you a new person. But you're the, all you're asked to do is put your faith there. Put your trust in who Christ is and what he's accomplished. And it's very clear. God says, here's what I accomplished for you. Christ has died. He's been resurrected. That's, that's all that needed to be done. That You don't need to do anything. You, in fact, you can't do anything. All I'm asking you to do is trust that it's true. So when we don't put our faith in Christ, we're basically ignoring God's commands. We're ignoring the only way he's provided to be forgiven. I want you to imagine these friends of Job listening to God and then saying, you know, I appreciate the input there, Lord, uh, uh, but I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice a couple pigeons, you know. We just think that's a little more reasonable. Our sin wasn't that bad. We're just going to get a couple pigeons and... And we're going to use some different animals. And we don't need to go really to Job. We don't need to go through him. We're just going to do it our way. We appreciate the advice and how to be forgiven. But we're going to do it our way. What would have happened? They would have been judged. And rightfully so. Because God has clearly said, this is the way. And if you ignore this, you ignore it uh, at your own peril. The reason why is this. And this is the key. If you've got a Bible, write in it, underline it, circle it, whatever you want to do. It's at the end of verse 9. We see it... In verse 8 as well, but in the end of verse 9, it says this, The Lord accepted Job. Go back up to verse 8. That's exactly what God said he would do. He said, My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept him. The Lord accepted Job. Not the friends. It's not even really mentioning the sacrifice as much as it's saying God accepted Job, the person of Job. Here's what you need to understand. When you put your faith in Christ, God is, not, God is not accepting you, okay? He's accepting Christ for you, all right? That is why once you've come to genuine faith in Christ, quit worrying about whether or not God accepts you. He never accepted you to begin with. He accepted Jesus. It was his life, his work, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his righteousness, and all salvation is, when you put your faith in Christ, is you agreeing to hide under that, under Christ's righteousness and, and accepting the penalty that he paid. God doesn't accept you. He accepts Christ. And that's where your security lies. So if you, there are people who have genuinely put their faith in Christ. They're trusting in Jesus. They are so worried. God's not going to accept me because of their past or because they make a mistake. And I want to look at them and say, and I do. He never accepted you to begin with. Your salvation was never based on anything you did anyway. It was based on the finished work of Christ. So quit worrying about that. This is what, the, this is what we're talking about, where true freedom comes from in Christ. You have the freedom 
to live without the worry that you're going to be condemned even when you mess up, which we all do. If you've genuinely trusted in Christ, he's changed you. God bless you for being concerned about your sin. We have way too many Christians or professing Christians out there who aren't concerned about their sin. But nevertheless, if you're concerned about your sin, just the, the very next thought, the first thought when you sin should be guilt. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. By the way, that's an act of mercy. It's not, it's not trying to, for God to make you feel bad about yourself or make you wall in your sin. It's an act of mercy for him to convict you. Your very first thought should be, I am guilty. I've, I've, I've sinned here. Your very next thought following up with that is Christ has paid for that. Listen, God never meant for you to live in guilt. It's a terrible way to live. Because I, I, don't live in guilt. If you did something wrong, okay, then confess it and move on. But you shouldn't live in guilt. If you didn't do anything wrong, you shouldn't feel guilty. But God never meant people, especially his people, to live in guilt. Christ has paid for it. It's done. He took it all on himself. And so you can have confidence in that and you can live freely and you can confront your sin. Even the ugliest parts of who you are deep down inside that nobody else knows about, nobody sees, you can confront that and you don't have to run from it because you know Christ has paid for this sin. It's not being held over my head. It's paid for. It's already been accomplished. Then in verse 10, we see the exalted Christ. It says in verse 10 that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. And then if you read chapters or verses 11, I'm sorry, through 17, you'll see how God restored his wealth and family, and, and he, he was elevated in status, really. He was better off. Uh, than he was before financially and as far as respect goes his friends came back people comforted him they consoled him Uh, so job interceded on behalf of his friends and then god restored restored him he got friends back money animals more children he lived he lived a long life god exalted him christ also having completed the work of the cross and been raised from the dead is now exalted at the right hand of the father Hebrews chapter 1 says, When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he had inherited a more excellent name than they. I want you to step back for a minute and think about even the whole book of Job. What you have in the book of Job is a man who had done nothing wrong, who was pretty exalted at that point already. He had money, he had fame, he had fortune. He was well-respected. He was godly. And yet, he had done nothing wrong. He was innocent. And he goes through an unbelievable time of humility uh, and degradation and suffering and pain. No fault of his own. All right, so he, he walks through this. As he walks through this, he gets to the end of it. He remains faithful to God. He remains faithful to God, so he is able to intercede. Because he remained faithful to God, he's able to intercede on behalf of his friends. And after he makes this intercession for his friends, what does God do? God exalts him. And that is the story of Christ. If you go back to Hebrew, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. I'm going to read it here in just a moment. If you want to turn there, uh, that's fine. I want you to listen to Isaiah chapter 52. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 52 verses 13. All the way through the end of Isaiah 53. And you will see this pattern. The exalted one. Who though he is innocent is humbled. And goes through suffering. To intercede for people. And then is exalted again. Isaiah chapter 52 verses 13. Behold my servant will prosper. 
And he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you. So there you have, this is who he is. Verse 14, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had, for what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed this message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we would be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will prolong his days. He will see his offspring and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That's Christ, exalted, then humbled interceding on uh, in between God and man on our behalf, raised from the dead, exalted again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, give the same pattern. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, there he is, God, Jesus was God. He existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with a thing Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Same pattern. You have exaltation. You have humiliation. You have suffering by an innocent person. You have obedience. You have intercession on behalf of sinners. And then you have exaltation again. You realize that Job never found out why he suffered like he suffered. He, he never ever knew at least this side of eternity all he knew was everything was restored he did question god god did not see fit to give him an answer 
And this is sheer speculation. But I wonder when Job finally died. And he stands in eternity with God. And he's been thinking for years, was there any purpose behind my suffering? God looks at him and says, Job, let me show you what's about to happen. There's a righteous one. There's a righteous one who's exalted, who's going to humble himself. And he's going to suffer. And then through his suffering, he's going to be able to intercede on behalf of his people. And then he's going to be exalted because he was obedient. Job, I preach the gospel through your life. That's the significance of what happened to you. And all of a sudden, Job says, I get it. I get it. The book of Job is not just about a man who went through needless suffering. The book of Job is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus humbling himself and interceding on behalf of sinners, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, being raised from the dead, and now highly exalted. That's the gospel according to Job. That's the main thrust of the book of Job. I'm convinced now that's the main thrust of the book of Job is to show us a picture of Christ as as God has done in many ways throughout Scripture when you read his word. You just see the gospel begin to come out at you. This is what Christ has done for us. Can it can it get any clearer? I mean, this I don't know how I missed this. I don't know how I missed it. Let me tell you, when you start really thinking on and dwelling and letting the gospel be at the center of who you are and how you live, and the gospel is not just what saves you, but it's what sanctifies you. It's where you draw your strength and your powers. How you treat people, how you uh, handle certain situations is all centered in the gospel. You begin to see the gospel everywhere. And you look at the Bible from Old Testament, New Testament, it's been there all along. If Jesus was the plan of salvation from before time began, and he was, then you're going to see the gospel from beginning to end in his word. And that's what Job shows us. If you'd please bow your heads. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, Pastor Jared's going to be standing here at the front. For those of you who are here and you have put your faith in Christ, you know for sure you're a believer in Christ. I want to tell you something. I want to remind you. We all need to be reminded of this every day. Jesus has paid it all. It's paid for. Quit wallowing in your guilt. Quit letting it eat at you and control your life. That's not why he died. It gives God great satisfaction and glory for you to confess that and admit it. It's not demeaning the gift he gave you. It's confessing truth. He's paid for it. That's what he loves for you to do. To admit, yes, I understand. This is true. And learn to live out of that instead of a legalistic attitude that holds you down because you think you can never measure up. You can't ever measure up. God knew that. That's why Christ came. He knew there needed to be a mediator, but there was. And a perfect mediator who died for you and was raised from the dead and simply says, trust me. Trust me. That's all I'm asking. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, you need to understand there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is Christ Jesus. There aren't many ways. It's not you being a good person. It's not you being a moral person. It's not you... Being a great husband or a great mom, a great dad, that's irrelevant. 
you offer nothing when you come to God. And in fact, if you approach God and try to tell him and try to say, look at what good I did, look how great I am, you are calling God a liar because he's already told you you're a wretch. He's not going to accept that. What he wants from you is humility enough to say, I give up. I realize now I can never be accepted in myself. I have to come through the mediator of Christ Jesus and trust what he did for me. And when you do that, your sins have been paid for on the cross. And God even gives you Christ's righteousness. So when he looks at you, he sees you through the lens of Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished, not you. And so you don't have to worry about whether or not God accepts you or not. If you're accepting Jesus, God accepts you because of what Christ has done. But it is a pride-killing truth to come to the grips that you can do nothing, nothing to be accepted by God. And we deserve nothing but judgment, nothing but condemnation, and nothing but hell. But that is why grace is so great. Because grace is us getting what we don't deserve freely. He just grants it to us. We stand there and say, we don't deserve this. And God smiles and says, you're right, you don't. I just want to give it to you. Because that's who I am. Trust in Christ and he extends that grace to you. So if that's something, if you've never trusted in Christ, you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never trusted in what Christ has accomplished, you need to do that today. And it's simply a confession of right where you're sitting, yes, Lord, now I believe. Now I understand. I'm sure Jared would love to share with you and talk with you about that. I'm sure he'd love to pray with you. So in just a moment after I pray, he's going to be standing here at the front. If there's anything that you need to speak with him about, pray about, if you want to know more about how to have a relationship with Christ, if you want him to pray with you to say, look, I've got this sin that's been hanging over me and, and I want to bury it. I want to trust that Christ has paid for it and walk away from the guilt. He'll be glad to pray with you so that you can live in the freedom that Christ meant you to live in.